This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hello from Stockholm, Sweden. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to the Polar Geopolitics podcast. We're up to 12 episodes now, with a lot more in the pipeline for the weeks and months ahead. We'd appreciate if you could take a second to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, send an email to polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at PolarGeopol, as well as at facebook.com slash polargeopolitics. On this episode, we get an NGO perspective on environmental protection and geopolitics in the polar regions by hearing from Frida Bankson, global project lead for the Greenpeace Protect the Antarctic campaign. We'll be discussing a range of issues pertaining to the polar regions. But first, Frida shares her insights on international negotiations for creating additional marine protected areas around Antarctica. She attended last October's meeting of CAMELAR, the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources in Hobart, Australia, which received a great deal of media coverage for failing to reach an agreement on new MPAs in the Weddell Sea and other parts of the Southern Ocean. This year's Kemmler meeting was concerning in the way that it became, I think, more clear to me and others in that sort of what used to be the gold standards of global ocean conservation and sort of the best practice of of how that should be done, that that is like slowly failing. And it was sort of even hard to agree on very relatively small issues. It was almost like it was an intentional disagreement and sort of stalling tactics in moving Kemmler forward, which is sad to see. And of course, we hope will change. Camillar is important in oceans governance due to its sort of special charter that puts ecosystem-based management at the much of center and that it has a clear mandate to deliver a network of marine protected areas in the Antarctic. It was a tough meeting this year. Unexpectedly so? I mean, was something happened that um, there was unforeseen beforehand? No, we, we knew it would be difficult. And, and of course, like global governance issues are on land and in the oceans. We have, however, felt like sort of the spirit of reaching the Ross Sea Agreement, that that would sort of keep on making Camilla, the Camilla system and its member countries sort of more keen to continue. And it, in the darkest of moments, you can almost feel like this was a backlash to that progress. Hopefully it isn't, because I think in the Rossi Agreement, everybody was very positive and, and happy that created the largest protected area that we have on the planet. We hope to see more of that spirit coming forward. We knew it would be difficult entering into these forums. It's not an easy, easy thing. If I put my sort of general public hat on, then I think it's kind of pretty obvious that we should protect Antarctica. But when you come closer to sort of the politics around it and the interests and then and, and you see like it's not as easy. Could you elaborate on that? These politics that you feel um, were not in the spirit of the of the Rossi Agreement, which is only not that long before this this uh, latest meeting in Hobart. What, what happened in between? What sort of politics got in the way? I think it's sort of that it's sort of the growing interest of I think what Antarctica and the Southern Ocean can be in terms of a changing planet and we have more access to areas we didn't have used to have access before we have more technology it's almost as if nations are scared to sort of give up future possibilities without knowing what those future possibilities could be but the idea of doing that and also that agreeing to certain things in an Antarctic context will then be able to sort of transpire into the global oceans governance discussion so if you agree on large scale MPAs in Antarctica that would then naturally sort 
sort of transcend into other high seas areas. And of course, that is a complicated discussion. And that's also the UN is now having these treaty negotiations to come up with a new oceans treaty to solve sort of how do we create MPAs and area-based management on, on the high seas. So I think it's like the sort of idea of future possibilities. And then, of course, also countries have come into the Antarctic discussion in, in different pace and in different times. So I think it's also like some countries have been involved for a long time and have certain interests and others might have others and are now just starting to explore Antarctica. China, of course, being one of those countries that have come in later. They weren't part of the early early signatories. So I think they come in with a slightly different sort of trying also to find their way in and sort of what is their interest. It is hard these days to get big environmental global governance issues sold. Was it easier before? It probably wasn't. If you talk to anyone about how they got to agree on the Stockholm Convention, I think that was probably also quite a... Or the Rio process, which was very long. I think what's changing is the urgency. We know we have very little time and there's a very rapid decline in biodiversity. And biodiversity is under a much more increased stress because of climate change. I think it's that kind of time urgency that I feel very strongly. Like, we don't have time for this. What about this? What about that? discussions. What were your goals going into this latest meeting in Hobart? What, what were you hoping to achieve that even though you saw obstacles uh, even before the meeting, what, uh, what were you trying to achieve and then what really more specifically, what blocked it from happening? Mm. We came into this year's Camillar discussion, also the whole campaign that Greenpeace did that ran up to it was sort of the proposal to create an um, Antarctic Ocean Sanctuary in the Weddell Sea, uh, which is a proposal that's been developed by Germany over a long time. And it's sort of part of that network of MPAs that's part of an agreement that Camillar made. We also saw clearly that the East Antarctic proposal has been stalled and stalled, and we thought that the, the Weddell Sea had a fair chance to be agreed this year. So we had we had high hopes, and I think that's also my role. Like, I can't come into this and think it's not possible. Possible. I have to come in with it but I, that I think it's possible. We know that it would be hard. We also knew that we had to raise the public profile, but also raise the political profile because we saw clearly like one of the reasons behind the Ross Sea is also the kind of high level engagement we saw from both particularly John Kerry, but also Obama and even Hillary at times talking about sort of Antarctic and the US government role in facilitating that conversation. So we also knew that like you can't, I don't think in any any of these issues and we see the same on climate like it has to become higher level politics for the deals to be made. A lot of the campaign was sort of focused around that, raising that public profile around Antarctic issues. I mean, right after the meeting, I mean, the fingers were pointed at, at China, you China, Russia and Norway. And you mentioned on the other side of the equation, perhaps the United States and Germany. Is, is, that, is there certain groupings among the um, parties to Camelot that take very different positions on, on how to uh, treat uh, marine protected areas? We pointed to three countries after the meeting. Uh, of course, they didn't oppose the proposal that was on the table for the same reasons. And we tried to reflect that. We saw Norway had its own proposal that they put forward as they, they viewed as a compromise. We disagree that that was a compromise and it was unclear what the intention was with that proposal. They come from different places. I think for me it's easier with Norway. It's our neighbor <laughs> in Sweden. I've worked, I lived in Norway for a long time. I think for me the the hope in all of this was, of course, that we have seen those countries agree to the Rossi and celebrate the Rossi. So it's not like they're never done anything along the lines of what approving the Vettel Sea would be. So you know we had our hopes that that could be achieved. So. Of course, it was hugely disappointing. And it was disappointing on many because we not only did the Vettelsee proposal got blocked or it's not a vote. And I think this is sort of the confusing thing with Camilla. It's sort of like you're trying to reach agreement verbally and it's enough with one country raising a concern. 
it could be any concern for the discussion to not move forward. So it wasn't that there was a vote uh, as such, but like there was not agreement to move it forward. But also very, it was also sad to see again the East Antarctic proposal also be dismissed. There was also other kind of pieces that weren't agreed on, like fisheries regulations that should be quite simple to adopt that there was also not adopted. What sort of concerns were raised? One is sort of, sort of, we don't know what's there, so we don't know what we're protecting. Um, much of the Weddell Sea is covered by sea ice and very heavy sea ice. So we don't know exactly everything that's under the seabed. That was one of the reasons. Of course, Norway had some ideas of thinking that sort of the area, of course, it's a huge area. So the area is four times the size of Germany. That's some of the analysis of some of the areas were not good because some areas dealt with where they had lots of data and some were data poor and was sort of modeling so it was like a modeling discussion like if you had applied the right kind there was also some discussions around what about research fisheries uh, that's of course one of the things that is sort of constantly being much of Antarctica is actually closed for fishing and you have to have proposal to open for research fishing so it was also like how do you handle that so I think there were reasons used so they were slightly different but of course there could be underlying reasons that you don't want to see MPAs which I don't think looking at, for example, interesting enough, sort of Russia in the Arctic, where they've been very much active and engaging in, in really useful, good conversations around MPAs and establishing their own MPAs in the Arctic. So I don't, I don't think that Russia as such is sort of completely against marine protected areas. But it's, yeah, it's hard to know exactly the reasons. I'd like to get back a little bit later in the interview, uh, some comparisons between the Arctic and the Antarctic in terms of the political dynamics and work of Greenpeace. Before, so I'd like to hear more about what you do as, as a representative of an NGO, a major international NGO, Greenpeace. How do you find a place in these negotiations? Are you just sort of sitting at this, on the sidelines observing and listening, or are you actually actively lobbying certain countries, certain individuals? Are you protesting? Are you, are you <laughs> providing scientific information? What, what role does an NGO play in these, in these sort of contexts? Oh, I think you mentioned all of it. <laughs> so, no, of course, for us, this was a year-long campaign that we started. We we knew that. So we we started our year with a, an expedition with one of our ships down to Antarctica, where we brought a scientist with us and a submarine. So we conducted sort of research and outreach around our ship. We also then did, of course, political lobbying. We worked with the industry to get them on board on, on the concept of marine protected areas. That's how we landed this agreement with the krill fishermen in, in terms of supporting some of these processes. You know, you used the entire toolbox of what an organization like Greenpeace have. We also work very heavily through uh, ASOC, which is the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, which is sort of the umbrella organization for all. It has many members, but I think the biggest ones that people would know of is Greenpeace, WWF, and then Pew Charitable Trust. So we work very closely with them in a sort of coordinated effort. And also like at the meeting itself, it's only ASOC that has observer status. So we all uh, work under the ASOC umbrella at the meeting. And of course, we have a right to speak uh, not on the same level as a government but we have a right to raise our voice at the meeting and then also it's a meeting where you can interact directly with government officials and sort of try to lobby them there I think from experience most of these decisions are taken before people go to the meeting they have instructions from home I think for any of these meetings it's like all the work you do leading up to the meeting itself which is sort of the most important thing you can do so you're already planning for the next meeting in Hobart uh, in October 2019 then yeah yeah of course <laughs> we'll We'll be there. Um, 
Greenpeace is running a slightly different campaign this year, and that's because of the UN Oceans Treaty negotiations. So we have to sort of broaden our scope to include the entire high seas for the work that we're doing. So that includes sort of Arctic and yeah other high seas areas. But we will be in Hobart again. We are also working now on trying to sort of what is the way forward for the specific Weddell Sea proposal, the Antarctic Ocean Sanctuary, and then also trying to see like where that's gonna end up, and then also with um, again trying to see if we can get high level engagement to get East Antarctica finally approved because it becomes this sort of thing that I think becomes blocking. We have to sort of unblock that process by getting the East Antarctic proposal agreed. Do you see any signs of, of, of hope leading up? I mean, six months away still. Have you seen any, any indication six, seven months away? Yeah, no, we've had seen, we, we know that, you know, France, which is one of the proponent countries behind um, the East Antarctic, you know, they're, I think, trying to use more high level politics to move that discussion forward. And I think that's very much needed. You know, there's a lot of really good bureaucrats who work on these processes and scientists. And I think they've done their part, like the scientific justification for this area is like, it's clear. So I think now it's about politics, and then we have to get it higher up. And hopefully that's going to happen. I think with the Weddell Sea, we're more trying to see sort of where does the Norwegian proposal or sits with the current proposal and how are we going to try and merge that into one holistic way forward and of course we would very much like to see Norway joining Germany and becoming a, a proponent country in the sense that they actually also take an active ownership of shepherding that process through not change side but like take a more active role in, in being one of the proposing countries but then of course we have to make sure that it's the proposal we want to see and not a smaller proposal so we are kind of looking into those sort of options but we know that because of the UN negotiations there's also so many other things happening and we also have of course the Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting so normally like <laughs> the camera politics sort of happens after the Antarctic Treaty or during that time and perhaps we can talk about some of the more specific Antarctic issues that Greenpeace is, is working on. You mentioned krill fisheries. Um, you've made some agreement with private uh, krill fishing uh, industry representatives. I saw on on, uh, on the internet the direct action that, that Greenpeace <laughs> did against a Ukrainian uh, krill fishing uh, vessel. And it struck me 40 years ago it would have been against you know trying to save whales. Now you're trying to save <laughs> krill. I mean, do, do you see any, any problems with that, with these species that perhaps don't capture the public's imagination to, to the same extent? But at the same time, when you're going and working with industry, something that perhaps Greenpeace would not have done 40 years ago. Do you see any advantages towards the the, the approach taken now? Yeah, no, I, I I tend to think that the sort of the whaling campaign we like sort of almost won. I think there's so very little. We have the IWC, we have the moratorium. We see that whale populations are more and more of them are showing clear signs of recovery. So I think that that's a good thing. We have worked on krill before. It's of course not as charismatic <laughs> as whales, even if we do have some very lovely krill in the, in Happy Feet and other movies. It, it kind of struck me that people did engage with krill, and I think. People people sort of understand that sort of it's the building block of the entire ecosystem it's what sort of wells and, and uh, penguins depend on for their survival so I think it wasn't as difficult as one can imagine to get people sort of understanding of why krill is important and we have previously been opposing the MSC certification of krill and of course have flagged issues around krill fisheries previously so this was, it's like it's not completely new to Greenpeace to talk about krill fisheries or sort of talking about fisheries that are sort of reduction fisheries or fishing so low down the, the food web and I think also like with industry, I think in this context, we of course mounted sort of our pressure on them to sort of be on the right side. And in that sense, like when talking about sort of today, the krill fishery is sort of relatively limited in terms of the overall volume of krill. And I think that's kind of based on what we know, the proportion of krill that they're actually taking out. I wouldn't say that it's precautionary because we don't know about climate change, but it's like relatively small. But of course, the most urgent problem at the moment is of course that they've been fishing too close to penguin colonies and other 
important feeding ground for whales. And that's what we tried to do to sort of turn the industry around and say, fine, you want to fish krill, but don't fish it everywhere and get them to sort of agree to that. And it was amazing to see it's through ARC, the Association of Responsible Krill Fishing Vessels, that they almost got the entire fleets from all nations to agree to voluntarily stay out of some of those most sensitive areas, especially in the in the period when the penguins raised their chicks, which they're very vulnerable to traveling long distances. And I think for me, that was sort of the big win last year. And I think that can have a direct impact on penguin populations under extreme pressure from climate change. We just saw now that sort of looking at the distribution of krill, like even if there's still a lot of krill in the Antarctic, like they're shifting where they are. And looking at, for example, penguins, it's not so easy for them to shift. It's a very harsh environment and they need certain kinds of, they need beaches and they need places where they can have their colonies. And it's not so many of them. So while krill is changing distribution, there's still quite a lot of krill. It's not necessarily so that the penguins can access it. And if they lose access to krill, you know, they will be wiped out very, very quickly because they're so dependent on that species. Anything that we can do and support in terms of taking immediate measures to try and reduce that pressure, I think, is a big win. And hopefully in the end, we will see, I think, any responsible and sustainable krill fishery needs to have sort of ecosystem-based management at its core, of course, but also that part of that is agreeing to closing off areas for fishing. Plastics is another problem that uh, you addressed at uh, Greenpeace as part of your Protect the Antarctic mm-hmm. campaign. Can you tell us a bit about that? What, what sort of um, strategies you're taking to reduce the plastic problem there? Greenpeace has been collecting microplastics over a very long time and it's quite interesting because our vessels travels everywhere and we've been doing quite a big collection of microplastics. We were concerned about sort of two things. One is sort of the, the influx of microplastics from other parts of other oceans because it's believed that sort of the currents keep Antarctica clean. So that's why we wanted to see some of the sort of microplastic but then also like it's an increasing tourism industry what kind of footprint do they bring there's also of course plastic coming out of fishing waste and and from ships so we looked into that and of course found both microplastics and fibers that we could see was not originated from Antarctica most likely and we also found nets uh, down there and then we also found some not sort of the quantities as you will see in in a picture about plastic on the beach but we did find plastic wrappers and but I think also concerningly we tested for uh, chemicals that are air based that comes in like sort of our Gore-Tex jackets and the same chemicals that used for that and that we found and the only way that that can have been transported there is by wind I think it's probably one of the most pristine places we have on our planet but still sort of our footprint is on that continent is just increasing tourists and scientists right those are the main human uh, visitors yeah and of course you know the way we talk about fishing having an impact of course tourism and also have an impact with Antarctica we of course have Diato, the cruise operators and they have quite many strict guidelines and they're following that but of course that doesn't get away from the volume question so what I think also like in the future I think we have to close off some of these places also for tourism if they are going to be the most stricted protected places we have that includes tourism as well I don't think that we naturally have a right to walk around in these penguin colonies even if we have very good policies of not touching them or not bringing diseases or cleaning our boots and shoes we have an impact yeah hopefully we will see the industry wanting to do that why should they make less of an effort than the fishing industry perhaps we can compare um, the current uh, protect the antarctic campaign with your previous save the arctic campaign what lessons did you learn from that that you've transported to antarctica and how do you see the the uh, the political dynamics as being different or similar between the two polar regions 
threats that both poles are facing are very similar, sort of increased industrialization, increased activity, climate change. But like, I think the solutions are, are different. I think some of it is the same in terms of sort of creating large uh, marine protected areas, for example, but you can't necessarily do it the same way because you don't have the same mechanisms. We've seen two similar things happening in, in, in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and that is, of course, sort of voluntary measures taken by industry. Um, so we have a similar in, in the Arctic, around Svalbard, where the Russian and Norwegian fishing fleets has voluntarily stayed out of certain areas that haven't been fished heavily before and also has been covered by sea ice for longer periods of the year. So I think definitely when you have these sort of governance situations where things take time and, and they're tricky, I think there's a scope for sort of a, or a room for industry to be part of the solution and, and sort of voluntarily agree and move and I think that's kind of very much needed we need early movers we need to see change and when governments are slow in getting around regulatory hurdles or I think also for the Arctic if you look at the central Arctic Ocean we have of course the fisheries agreement but there's no way today that you can protect biodiversity on the high seas that set of rules doesn't exist so I think in those situations I think it's very encouraging to see that industry is willing to do these measures and then sort of stick by them and I've been very positively surprised to see how compliant they have been to the policies that they have agreed to. And of course, in the end, you know, I think industry doing this should then, of course, translate into regulatory changes. And hopefully by creating that gap, there's a regulatory mechanism that can be filling that gap. That has been sort of, at least for me, sort of food for thought, like how we can sort of speed up. And I think you see some of the same dynamics around climate change, where you see companies moving beyond sort of government standards because they know they have to change and they can't wait for regulations to fall in place. We know government and, and industries, are they, or companies, let's say, are they generally positive towards Greenpeace's engagement in, in Arctic, Antarctic issues, or is it on a sort of country by country and company by company basis, would you say? Yeah, a bit of both. You know, sometimes companies from certain countries surprise you, like, you know, they, they move and they do lots of good work. I've been recently being very impressed by work that's done by the Russian cod fishery in the Barents Sea. They're doing a lot of positive things around sort of trying to look into their footprint and how they they can protect certain areas and it's been very encouraging to see so i think we should be careful of your sort of going good bad because i think it's you see everything and sometimes you see things that you thought would be easy which turns out to be very difficult at least i'm coming into this with a very open mind and i think everyone is like sort of open and willing to change are you as confrontational in the antarctic as you were in the arctic i mean some of the most high profile direct actions of greenpeace of, of recent memory were these these warning of these russian oil platforms do, do you use that aggressive approach in the antarctic as well or is it more of a political finesse type of situation in the Antarctic. Yeah, you know, I think many people would consider climbing a fishing boat in very freezing conditions in Antarctica is equally as climbing an oil rig. I think, you know, we use non-violent direct action when we see that, that that will help to create a situation that leads to change. So it's not like we just sort of do that just because we want to do it. It's part of one of the tools that we use in, in the toolbox. It's part of what Greenpeace does. So if there is a, is a clear reason for doing it, we will do it if it's in the Antarctic or if it's in the Arctic. Where does the uh, Protect the Antarctic campaign go from here? We're, yeah, increasing the scope, focusing on the UN negotiations. That, of course, includes both Arctic and, and also sort of messaging around the Antarctic. So we are very much concerned about these negotiations and to make sure that we get as good as possible set of rules on how to protect, how to create marine protected areas on the high seas. So that will be our focus. But we're, of course, not sort of, even if people won't necessarily see as much of the Antarctic in the beginning of this year, it's, of course, included uh, in, in the work that we're doing. So oceans is one of our big focus areas in the coming year. That was Frida Bankson, project lead for the Protect the Antarctic campaign, who I interviewed at the Greenpeace Nordic headquarters in Stockholm.
You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.